This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Entrepreneurs in the developing world have a distinct disadvantage than their Western counterparts when it comes to trust. Western nations have spent centuries putting in place customs, institutions, a legal system, and credible regulatory bodies to support new companies. But those structures don't necessarily exist in places like India, Brazil, Mexico, or China. Our next guest suggests that smart entrepreneurs in these countries can adopt a mindset that allows them to create their own system of trust with employees, partners, clients, and customers. Tarun Khanna is a professor at the Harvard Business School. He's also director of the Lakshmi Mittal and Family South Asia Institute at the school. His new book looks at the innovative approaches that work in places where societal mistrust is high. The book is titled Trust, Creating the Foundation for Entrepreneurship in Developing Countries. And it's a pleasure to have Tarun joining us from uh, Cambridge today. Tarun, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me, Dan. Thank you. So uh, for those people that maybe don't follow this as closely, how different, how much of a challenge is it when you're trying to start a business in a developing country and that lack of trust is seemingly rampant throughout the region? Uh, You know, Dan, I often say that when I have my students here in in Cambridge uh, from Harvard or MIT, if they have an idea they're really sitting in a luxurious situation. They have armies of people coming by with risk capital, private equity, venture capital. They have lots of schools to draw talent from. They have intellectual property firms, lawyers, contract experts. Most of those things are underdeveloped uh, in the developing world. And so essentially, if you want to be an entrepreneur in the developing world, and God knows we need them in spades, uh, you're essentially trying to compete with your hands tied behind your back. So that's the problem that I'm focused on as an academic and as an entrepreneur myself. But that component of trust has to be a common thread in having a level of success, whether you're doing it here in the United States or, or Europe or someplace like that or in a developing country. Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, in the ventures that we build in, in Cambridge, uh, of course, you need to have your investors trust you, your uh, your employees trust you, your partners trust you. No one's, no one's again saying that. Uh, but it's a question of an order of magnitude more importance. Trust becomes, if you will, uh, the binding constraint. It's a limiting factor because you're surrounded by, if I may say it this way, uh, as a native Indian, uh, a miasma of mistrust. And right. you, that becomes a first-order problem for you to solve as opposed to something that you pay attention to as you go along. And, and I would think that it, it, whether it be a student that you've had or, or another person, they may not necessarily have that expectation that that mistrust is there as one of the first things that they really need to look at and tackle in trying to start a, 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 a business in a country. Uh, you know, Dan, that, that statement hits the nail on the head. Uh, We educate, and I know at HBS we do this, and at Wharton they do this, and all the leading schools in this country, we correctly tell people that, look, you focus on your so-called core competence. If you want to build a medical device company, you better be an amazing medical device person. And that's certainly true if you're building it in China or in India or Brazil. But what we don't tell people enough, in my view, which is why I wrote this book, is that that's not enough. Uh, the way I say it in the book is you, you don't just have the luxury of saying, I'm going to create something. You first have to create the underlying conditions to create that thing. Why do you think then in today's age and, and business sector, why do you think having that recognition is so more important today? 
Oh, it's always been important. Um, I mean, the reason the developing world is the developing world in the past several decades is that we haven't paid adequate attention to how do you make creative possibilities come alive relatively seamlessly. Now, that's not to say that they aren't interesting ventures. We hear about them all the time coming out of China and India in particular in recent years, multi-billion dollar companies. But relative to the potential and the need, it could be two orders of magnitude more. And again, goodness knows that the need is there for two or three orders of magnitude more innovation and uh, enterprise creation. So it's always been an issue. Uh, I'm just trying to direct attention to the lack of the enabling infrastructure within which creative people have to get their job done. Uh, and the, the onus on them now is to somehow compensate for these institutional inadequacies in addition to building their own enterprise, which is a, which is a tall order, but it can yeah. be done. It, yeah, because it adds another layer to the process that I mm -hmm. think uh, a, a lot of people that may be starting a company here in the United States wouldn't necessarily assume that you would have to include. That's, in fact, why I start the book by saying that the first thing you have to do is have a mindset change. Again, to go back to the simple saying, you, you can't just create. You have to create the conditions to create before you get on with it. Now, it's been criticized by some people, for instance, in the multilateral institutions in Washington saying, hey, aren't you making things really hard for the would-be entrepreneur? Right. And my response to that is, I'm just calling a spade a spade. It's not that I'm making it hard. I'm just saying it is hard. But it's not impossible, and we better be smart about it and recognize the problem rather than just throwing good money after bad. One of the examples you give is the Indian dairy sector. Uh, take us into into what is happening there and, and, and how that build-out has really had to rely on trust. Yeah, so I do uh, a, pair, a pair of examples. There's uh, an Indian dairy called Amul, which has been in existence for over 40 years. Um, and it's what I would just simple-mindedly called a low-tech approach to building trust amongst the dairy cooperatives uh, and building trust with the end consumer, and essentially building the, all the institutional mechanisms that are missing in the environment in addition to producing really high-quality milk and dairy products. And I contrast that uh, with an effort that uh, a friend I got to know in Shanghai and Beijing was building, uh, Huaxia Dairy, um, which is sort of a high-tech approach to building trust. And the purpose of that comparison is just to say that you can produce the best-in-class quality products in the world in these countries, and there are multiple ways to get to that desired level of trust. You just have to be careful about which direction you're embarking in. Technology can play a huge role in this, but it's neither a necessary thing for you to have high-tech enterprises to do this right, nor is it sufficient. Uh, and the pair of examples essentially pulls that off, I think. We're joined by uh, Tarun Khanna of uh, Harvard Business School. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. He is the author of the book Trust, Creating the Foundation for Entrepreneurship in Developing Countries. Again, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter, at BizRadio132, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. I, I can imagine, and, and Tarun, you can speak to this uh, more appropriately, but I can imagine that when you're an entrepreneur and you want to try and start a business in a particular developing country, you are in part trying to make sure that you build a relationship with the people of that region so that they understand the type of service, whatever it may be, that they are trying to bring to you. But I guess you're also trying to develop a relationship with that government that might be in that area. And you're trying to bridge probably a fact that the people may not trust the government or the government may not trust the people in that particular region. 
Again, you're exactly right. Uh, there is so much, as I said, rampant mistrust, which is almost sort of a defining descriptive feature of a developing country. And in my view, it's what causes a country to essentially remain underdeveloped. Now, look, we can all say, and it's commonplace to say, if you go to these countries, you know, I grew up in India, so you go to these countries and you say, you know, such and such a thing doesn't work. And people will say, well, the government is co corrupt or the government is incompetent. Uh, look, I'm a practical guy, and I say that may or may not be the case, but it's not helping us solve the problem. So what if we roll up our sleeves and take a problem area and figure out how do we build these bridges of trust in addition to building the enterprise that we actually want to build or in the course of doing it, uh, again, creating the conditions to create. And you rightly said uh, uh, education. You refer to education. Uh, in fact, I think a generalized uh, uh, lack of understanding, lack of exposure to new ways of doing things, lack of awareness uh, is unfortunately a characteristic of most developing countries because people don't have the luxury of being, of traveling and so on and so forth. So educating everybody in the ecosystem is part of the precondition of building this trust that allows people to come together to build these compensating mechanisms to deal with the uh, mistrust in the environment. What, what about the, the, the finance side of this uh, from the the entrepreneurs and in terms of trying to develop out this business in an area which where finance may also be a challenge as well. Uh, risk capital is extremely scarce. Um, so in, in you know what typically happens is uh, even if you are an entrepreneur in a metropolis in the developing world, uh, say a city like Guangzhou in China or São Paulo in Brazil or Johannesburg or Mumbai. Uh, you will find angel angel capital, You'll, which is exactly how it happens in, in the United States. You find uh, informed friends and family who put in some money into the venture and you take it there. So that, that sort of exists in pockets. The problem is that institutionalized venture capital and early stage private equity is severely lacking. And what does exist has very short time horizons. Uh, what I mean by that is that they have fiduciary pressure from their investors to return the money in a very short horizon of time. Again, because of the mistrust in the environment, the investors ask, ask the private equity funds to return the money to them uh, pretty soon. But the timescales needed to address these more complicated problems are longer than the timescale available to institutional investors. So you're stuck in this sort of cash 22 with a money that doesn't exist, or it exists, but it's very short time horizon money. Um, so, again, it goes back to building confidence with somebody who can trust you a little bit longer so that you have the time timelines to build it. But you talk about less this sorry. sound less this sound infeasible. The point of the book is to say, actually, it's not. I think it primarily requires a mindset change. Yeah. Uh, and you can see deliberate ways to do it uh, over time. And, and you talk about almost developing that team mentality uh, when, when you're building out a business in, in these some of these locations. Right. So take the example of uh, a very close friend of mine who is a heart surgeon in Bangalore, who today is recognized as the, as the provider of the lowest cost cutting edge heart surgery in the world, bar none, uh, as good or better than anything you see in our country, in the United States, uh, and available at literally a, a, a pittance. Uh, for him to actually pull that off, he had to build uh, educational institutions. He had to pioneer medical insurance. He had to pioneer satellite-based telemedicine to reach the patients that he needed to reach in different poor countries. Uh, he had to just to maintain quality standards. Uh, he had to just essentially build the entire soft infrastructure around him in order to be able to do cutting-edge heart surgery. 
But to do that, a lot of people had to cooperate with him. So it's not that he's physically going out and doing all this stuff himself, but he's got a constellation of guys who trust him and are willing to work with him because step by step by step over the last 10, 15 years, they've seen that he can make it happen. And you know what? He's saved uh, hundreds of thousands of lives and has built a billion dollar company. So it's doable. We're joined by uh, Tarun Khanna, who is the author of the book Trust, Creating the Foundation for Entrepreneurship in Developing Countries. He is also a professor at Harvard. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter, at BizRadio132, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. I would imagine that just as big... Uh, a, a challenge, Tarun, is once you develop that trust, is being able to keep that trust. Yeah, Dan, in the uh, in the book, I, I use uh, the example of organized microfinance uh, in Mexico, in particular, to illustrate um, how, as you rightly point out, trust can be lost in an instant. It takes months and years, sometimes decades, to build it. As the different examples show. And once it's built, it results in sustainable enterprises, doing a lot of good for society and making a lot of money for the different stakeholders. But you can lose it in an instance. Uh, Sometimes you lose it by essentially losing sight of your own purpose and making wrong decisions, just like that happens in our part of the world. Remember the 2008 financial crisis here, where I think there was widespread collapse of trust in the United States. This could happen anywhere. Um, But it could also happen because of, frankly, shenanigans by less well-meaning actors in the, in the environment, somebody who's after a scam, a politician who's uh, not quite on the straight and narrow, and so on and so forth, media that's unscrupulous or uh, wants to fan the flames for something. And unfortunately, that's part of the ambient constraints that you have to deal with as an entrepreneur. Uh, think about some parts of uh, India, think about Indonesia, Brazil these days, think about Nigeria. There are lots of places where uh, it's easy to fan the flames uh, and cause distress for somebody else to do something at your expense. And you have to be somehow resilient. Uh, There's some lovely stories in the book, I hope people have a chance to look at it, that essentially show how despite being uh, sideswiped, if you will, by some pretty devastating blows, it's possible for entrepreneurs who maintain uh, sort of a short-run plan to recover short-term trust is what I refer to it as. And then over time, again, build out the institutional infrastructure to allow people to trust you in the longer run uh, to recover. You, one of the uh, things that you uh, and examples that you give is Bolsa Familia in Brazil, and and Brazil is a country that obviously we've talked about quite a bit, uh, especially in the last couple of years here on this show, with all of the turmoil uh, and the uh, the political unrest and, and the corruption that has gone on in that country. Uh, I would imagine for some businesses that are really trying to build out. You almost find yourselves yourself in a catch twenty two where you're trying to do good, but the outside forces just are are, are really hindering your ability to do that. Uh, you know, Brazil is uh, is is a country where things just got a lot tougher. But hopefully, you know, in the service of a good cause, which is if in fact uh, the cleanup operation results in genuine cleanup. Uh, over the next years to come, then maybe lay the foundation for much less rampant mistrust. Um, the Bolsa Familia example actually goes back to before the current uh, uh, Bolsonaro regime yep. and the uh, even the Lula regime and so on and so forth. Um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful program that the government started, a conditional cash transfer program that essentially puts money in the pockets of poor families to make sure that their kids are educated, fed, vaccinated, things like that, if they meet certain conditions. 
the the problem that I highlight in the book is that even a great program like that uh, has plateaued in its effectiveness. If you think about a poor family that's been lifted from poverty to let's just call it a subsistence level, they now have their appetites have been have been wedded. They have the aspiration to break into. Uh, what they call in Brazil, uh, to leave the favela, the slums, yep. and to enter mainstream society. But that bridge from the favela to the mainstream society, sometimes in Portuguese you'd refer to as, as the asfalto, uh, which is like the asphalt. Uh, it's, an, it's a way of saying that you're coming to the city. Um, that bridge from the favela to the asfalto doesn't exist. So the benefits to recipients of Bolsa Familia are capped. And again, it's a consequence of distrust between two very polarized parts of society. Uh, and, you know, it should uh, it should not be too much of a stretch for people to see that that polarization exists in our own backyards. Now. Sure. Yeah. Well, and I, I, let me throw out another example of something that, that we've talked on the show recently. And obviously, this would still be a, a ways away before you could really see that type of, of growth come back. But Venezuela is another country that I think a lot of people believe that if you can get the regime change done and, and you can clean up a lot of the issues, there would be great opportunity for entrepreneurship to to build Venezuela off of the capital that it, it really has from the oil industry, but you know to build it in other areas as well. Oh, Venezuela has uh, amazing, uh, of course, petroleum assets, uh, perhaps even more importantly, given that we are moving towards a green future, one hopes everywhere. More importantly, it has amazing uh, human capital. Right. There's unbelievably talented uh, scientists, engineers, entrepreneurs, all of whom are leaving the country. You know that 10% of Venezuela has left in the last uh, last years uh, under the Maduro regime. But even prior to that, with the uh, with the body blows that the that the oil company PDVSA was receiving, uh, there is an entire diaspora of Venezuelans spread through. Miami, Central America, Chile, and even today, Chile is welcoming the Venezuelans because it's like a talent influx into into other countries. So you're, you're absolutely right. I think the fundamentals exist in Venezuela. If we can somehow transition to a more, shall we say, normal uh, governing system, that would be an amazingly nice thing. Going back to mindset for a, a second, how prevalent is this idea of having the right mindset uh, in terms of being able to build a business from a historical perspective? I would imagine that that this is something that probably has some common common themes going back, you know, 100, 200 years in terms of mindset of wanting to build business. Obviously, the dynamics are a little bit uh, different because of the the different eras in time. Oh, successful entrepreneurs, you know, whether you look at Southern Africa, you look at East Africa, Latin America, India, uh, have always built things the way that I am describing it, which is recognizing the limitations of the context and building into, if you will, their business plan an ability to do something about that. Because quite simply, without that, nothing works. Um, the, the, the issue, the reason to articulate the need for a mindset change is I think that the problem may arise with, uh, with us, us meaning the Harvards and the Whartons of the world, right. which is I think we are inadvertently and well in a well-intentioned way cultivating people who think they can make a quick buck uh, in these places, that they can go in with a technology, uh, do an app, uh, do an online game, and make, make a lot of money and exit very quickly. Uh, that's generally not feasible. Um, there's some exceptions here and there, but relative to the scale of the opportunity, that's a wrong way to think about it. Uh, there's some local sectors where you could 
manage with the limitations of the infrastructure around you. But by far, when you look at the health sector, you look at education, you look at agricultural technologies, you look at uh, all sorts of forms of new learning, you look at climate issues, uh, you're talking about system-wide change for which the enabling institutions don't exist in these countries. So either we wait for the governments to do it, in which case hell would freeze over, <laughs> yes. uh, or we get on with it and form you know, cabals of you and me who very much have the wherewithal to do it, but we just need to think about the problem slightly differently. We're joined by uh, Tarun Khanna, who is the author of the book Trust, Creating the Foundation for Entrepreneurship in Developing Countries. He is also a professor at Harvard Business School. I, you know, that last part that you mentioned uh, about hell freezing over, and the shame of it is, is that it, it, you can go to, I think, to almost any country and you can find great mindset, great thought process, great ideas out there. But it's just being able to break through some of the walls that are put in front of those people and of those particular companies uh, that, that in many cases, is the difference between success and failure. Uh, by the way, Dan, I mean, you know, what I'm advocating for entrepreneurs to do in uh, the Mexico's uh, and the Kenya's of the world, the Nigeria's of the world, is no different than what the U.S. did over the last hundred years. Sure, yeah. Because uh, we were a developing country, too, yeah. at some point. And we built the infrastructure. It's just that we're forgetting that it took us several decades to build it. And sitting today with the benefit of all this stuff that our forefathers built for us, we're able to do things faster. But we're asking other countries to do it instantly without them having gone through that process and without helping them through that process. That, I think, is a mistake. So then we have the problem uh, of this day and age of, of wanting to have everything happen in an hour and a half and not, under, right. and not understanding <laughs> that, there is a, that there is a process that you have to go through. You got it. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Tarun, thank you very much for coming on the show. Greatly appreciate uh, your time, and it's a fantastic book, and, and it really will, uh, it will give a lot of people thought uh, when they are uh, thinking about these types of ventures in, in other parts around the world. Thank you, Dan. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Tarun Khanna, the book is Trust, Creating the Foundation for Entrepreneurship in Developing Countries. Uh, Tarun, professor at Harvard Business School and director of the Lakshmi Mittal and Family South Asia Institute there at Harvard as well. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.